You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. If you're able to remain standing, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We do have the family rooms available, or the family room available if you need that. Um, The noise of your children does not distract me. More than welcome to stay. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Beloved, this is God's holy word. Please be seated. Well, we are continuing in the, our study of the Gospel of Matthew this morning, and we come to the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. We come, of course, to Jesus' own Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the first of five major teachings from Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And it is the longest and, of course, the most famous sermon that Christ has preached, recorded in all of the Gospels. And, of course, this sermon from Christ doesn't come out of nowhere in Matthew's narrative. Instead, in our text last week, Matthew echoed, if you remember, a prophecy from Isaiah which stated that a great light has dawned. A great light has come into the darkness. And Matthew is saying, 
by quoting Isaiah's prophecy, that great light is Jesus Christ. Matthew highlights that prophecy as Jesus begins his public ministry. And Jesus' first public sermon in Matthew's gospel is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That great light from heaven the Son of the Most High, Jesus Christ, has come into the world. And in His coming, illumination, clarity, sight to the blind, and beauty all come with Him. And if it's true that in the coming of Jesus Christ, that with the coming of Jesus Christ is like light dawning in the darkness, if, if that is true, then the Sermon on the Mount is the blazing sun at high noon. I've shared this before, but John Stott has noted that the Sermon on the Mount is the nearest, nearest thing to a manifesto that we have that Jesus has uttered because it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. This is Jesus' own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. And the Sermon on the Mount, as you read through it, in our verses in particular, but if you read through the whole sermon, is dealing with primarily two questions. And that is, that is this. Number one, what is the character of a Christian? What is the character of a Christian? That theme is going to come up certainly in our text this morning, but all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. And the second question is, what is Christian witness in the world? Jesus is really concerned in this sermon about character and conduct. These are the questions. And I submit to you this morning that we need clear eyes on the answer to these questions. Clear eyes. Today it seems to me that everyone except Jesus has claimed the right to answer what a Christian ought to be and ought to do. The political right, the political left. Christians ought to be and do this. Christians ought to be and do this. This news channel says Christians ought to be and do this. This news channel says Christians ought to be and do this. It seems like everybody has a hot take these days on what the Christian ought to be and do in the world. In the church today, the clear waters of Christianity, our most precious faith has been muddied as I've mentioned, by partisan politics, unrepentant sin in the church, and in some cases, an all-out abandonment of the gospel itself. Preached from pulpits of beautiful church buildings, of which we wish they would sell us one day. <laughs> have abandoned the gospel of Jesus Christ and have embraced the wisdom of the world. This clear clarion call from Christ to the church has been muddied. And so the question is, who can answer these questions? What is the character of a Christian? What is faithful Christian witness in culture, in the world? I submit to you this morning that the church already possesses the clear answers to these questions. And the challenge is not in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. His sermon is remarkably clear. 
It is simple. It is brilliant. It is genius. But we can understand it. The problem is not Jesus' preaching. The problem is with us. And so the question for us as we begin this clear, dynamic, world-changing sermon, the question for us is will we be courageous enough to take Jesus at his word? Will we be courageous to take Jesus at his word, even if it comes at great cultural, political, financial, physical, or emotional cost? It takes courage to follow Jesus. And the question is, will we follow him at all costs? The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' own description of what he wanted his followers then and now, what he wanted his followers to be and to do. May God grant us spirit-led clarity and spirit-led conviction as we read the words of this most famous sermon from Christ. Now, the first 16 verses in Matthew 5 serve as an introduction to Jesus' sermon. This is the gateway, the doorway into the rest of the sermon. And these verses, these 16 verses serve as both the doorway and the foundation, the principal foundation upon which everything else rests. You will not understand his sermon apart from understanding these first 16 verses. We can't parachute in in chapter 6 or in chapter 7. These introductory statements are paramount to us understanding what Jesus is after in his sermon. And so we're going to spend the whole of our time this morning looking at these 16 verses as his introduction. And in so doing, I'm going to provide us three headings that will guide our time this morning. Three headings. If you're a note taker, this is to keep you on track and to keep me on track. Number one, the authority of Christ. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we've been working through the authority of Christ for four chapters in Matthew. But I want to start with the authority of Christ, number one. Second, the character of a Christian. And third, the witness of a Christian in culture. So the authority of Christ, the character of a Christian, and the witness of a Christian in culture. So first, look at verse 1 with me as we look at the authority of Jesus Christ. The authority. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Stop there for just a moment. At this point in Jesus' ministry, his fame has already begun to swell. His popularity has grown. In fact, we learned from last chapter that great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. These swelling crowds were astonished at Jesus' authority over demons and over every affliction that plagued humankind. 
They were impressed by his authority, but it was his authority over the physical and spiritual realm. But now, for the first time, after they listen to this sermon, both the disciples and the crowd are astonished at the authority of his teaching. Look at Matthew 7. I'm going to have these verses on the, the screen. Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29. This is right after Jesus finishes his Sermon on the Mount. This is the reaction Verse 28, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The crowd is right. Jesus is teaching with authority and not as the scribes. But they don't go far enough. Matthew wants to see wants you to see an authority beyond the scribes or anything else. So Jesus sees the crowds. Try to picture the scene. He sees the crowds. They want to see a show. They want another miracle. They want another sort of astonishing healing. But Jesus goes up to a mountain. He goes up to a mountain. The crowd stays behind, but his disciples come to him. He goes to a mountain. As you read through the Bible, you'll discover that God loves to reveal significant things about himself on top of mountains. Mount Moriah, when Abraham was about to sacrifice his son Isaac, and the Lord stopped the knife and provided the ram. That was atop a mountain. Mount Sinai, when God would give his law, the Ten Commandments through Moses to the people, that was on top of a mountain. We move into the New Testament. We see the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Transfiguration. God loves to reveal significant things about himself on top of mountains. And this mountain would be no different. This mountain connects with all the other mountains of redemptive history. It's clear that as you read through Matthew's gospel in general and as you read through the Sermon on the Mount in particular, you will find that Matthew is really interested in showing his Jewish audience that what is happening in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ is not disconnected from the promises of God in the Old Covenant. In other words, Matthew wants you to see continuity from the Old and the New Covenant. He wants you to see all of these mountains leading to a significant or the most significant mountain of all. And that, of course, is Calvary, where Christ shed his blood. Matthew is intent on showing the continuity between the Old and the New Testament. And that is to say that the same God of Abraham... The same God of Isaac and Jacob is at work now in the gospel of the kingdom through Jesus Christ. And Matthew wants to show us that Jesus is actually the fulfillment of every promise of salvation given to the offspring of Abraham. In short, Matthew wants you and I to see and to feel the supreme authority of Jesus Christ on this mountain. He wants us to see a better Moses who ascends a better mountain to mediate a better covenant 
for his people. Matthew wants you to be utterly convinced that the one who is speaking is God in the flesh and that what he has to say is more important than anything else you and I have ever heard. And so we have the authority of Jesus Christ on a new mountain mediating a better covenant for the people of God. And this leads us now to the opening text of Jesus' sermon, commonly known as the Beatitudes, in a section that I've entitled The Character of a Christian. One vital note before we move into the text, and this is an interpretive key that we cannot miss. I want you to notice in verse 1 again, the difference in position between the crowd and Jesus' disciples. Jesus ascends the mountain. The crowds stay behind. They are in earshot. They're going to hear the sermon. But the crowd stays behind, and Jesus' disciples come up on the mountain with him and sit at his feet to listen. Now, this is a subtle but vital detail, and it serves to show just how Jesus is a better Moses who ascends a better mountain. Remember, the people of God could not go near Moses on top of Sinai when the law was being given. They were terrified. There was thunder and lightning. There was guilt and shame and fear of God, and Moses alone would go before God and would take the law and would write it on tablets of stone. However, though, as Jesus now ascends his mountain in order to mediate a better covenant, a law written not on tablets of stone but on flesh, his disciples come with him. His disciples are not left behind, cowering in fear, wondering if God is going to strike them dead. No, this Moses who ascends this mountain brings his disciples with him. Even in this little vignette, we have a picture of Jesus Christ mediating a better covenant than Moses. This means that before Jesus tells his church, his disciples, what they are to do and how they are to act, before he tells them what they are to do and act, they are already with him on the mountain. They are already with him. So please listen. If you try to use the Sermon on the Mount as an attempt to ascend the mountain of salvation, if you try to use the Sermon on the Mount as a how-to guide to get to heaven, to get to glory, you will die before you put your shoes on. This is not an if-then kind of sermon. If you be poor in spirit, then God will accept you. If you be meek and mild, then you can take one more step up the mountain. That is not what's going on here. The disciples are already with him. This is not an if-then kind of sermon. This is a because-therefore. Because you are already with him, by grace, through faith because you've already been adopted, invited up on the mountain through no efforts of your own, because you are already with him. Therefore, go and live. Be salt. Be light. If we miss this interpretive key, 
we will turn the Sermon on the Mount into just another law, back-breaking do's and don'ts to try to earn our way to heaven. This is a message for Christians who are already on the mountain with Christ by grace, through faith. Amen? So, with that in mind, look at verse 2 and following. I'm going to read through all the Beatitudes now. And he opened his mouth, verse 2, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, verse 9, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those, verse 10, blessed are the, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. My goodness. St. Augustine, commenting on the Beatitudes, wrote this, quote, The one who opened mouths of the prophets... To proclaim God's heart to God's people has now opened his own mouth to describe what it means to be blessed of God. What does it mean to be blessed of God? What is the blessed life? I died laughing the first time I heard someone say, I'm too stressed to be, or I'm too blessed to be stressed. Right off of the bat, don't we discover something utterly unique about Jesus' view on the blessed life? Right off the bat, we understand that Jesus' understanding of blessing is far different than what we would expect, especially in our day. Material wealth, cheerful circumstances, a new car, a new home, a new job, these are all descriptions of the blessed life in our culture. And certainly these kinds of things can be blessings. But Jesus, listen, Jesus lays out an entirely different understanding of the blessed life. Completely counterintuitive. He aims, Jesus does, not on the external realities of one's life, but he points to the internal posture of one's heart. He aims at character. The most influential person who has ever lived, the one who holds all the secrets of an abundant life in his hand, indeed the creator of life itself, has opened his manifesto, 
the most important teaching he'll ever give. He opens his manifesto to show with, share with you and I the heart of God and the purpose of man. And what does he say to open it up? Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's crazy. That doesn't make sense. My flesh hates that Jesus said that. Blessed are the poor in spirit. My flesh hates that, and yours does too. And that's why we need to hear it. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? To be poor in spirit means that you are aware of your spiritual ruin. Another way to say that is to be poor in spirit means that you're aware of your spiritual bankruptcy. You have no means by which you can barter with God. You can't ascend the mountain of salvation. You're spiritually broke. Those who are poor in spirit are, in a sense, blind enough to perceive their need for God. It's a paradox. To be blind enough to perceive your need for God. Beloved friends, visitors, you, you listen. I don't know how Christianity has been represented to you, but please listen. You don't need to be smart enough to know your need for God. You don't need to be healthy enough to know that you need God. You don't even need to be spiritual enough to know that you have a need for God. No, the answer I believe the New Testament gives is that you need to be blind enough to see that you need God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Son of David, have mercy on me. I can't see my way, so I'm going to shout it out. Have mercy on me. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. I am coming to God with nothing to barter. Lloyd-Jones, the best preacher outside of Jesus who ever lived, says this. Quote, this is the beatitude which must come at the beginning and for good reason. Listen. Because there is no entry into the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God apart from it. Holy smokes. Is that true? He goes on. There is not one. There is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. This is the fundamental characteristic of the Christian and of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and all the other characteristics are, in a sense, the result of this one. Nobody gets to the kingdom of heaven. Nobody gets to glory apart from being poor in spirit, apart from knowing that they fundamentally need God for salvation. For instance, you won't hunger and thirst for righteousness, another beatitude. You won't hunger and thirst for righteousness until you are poor in spirit. 
You won't lament and mourn the sin and sickness of this world until you are poor in spirit. Beloved, we cannot be filled with the free gift of God's immeasurable grace until we are emptied of our own efforts to satisfy our own guilty consciences. The blessed person is the one who fundamentally knows they need God. That's the blessed person. Time doesn't permit us to go through each of the Beatitudes in detail, but the overwhelming consensus is that these Beatitudes are countercultural. You're not going to catch a Beatitude in the headlines of the news. <laughs> you're, you're just not. It's countercultural. It's counterintuitive. It's, it goes beyond or against what we think. Who are the blessed? Jesus says, they are the poor, they are the meek, they are the humble, they are the thirsty, they are the merciful, they are the pure of heart, they are the peacemakers, and by the way, there are those that are being persecuted. Those are the blessed of God. And I was thinking about this last week, or rather last night as I was praying and preparing you and I will not know the names of 99.9% of the blessed. We just won't know them. They live quiet lives, loving their God and loving their neighbor, and in so doing, changing the world. Changing the world. I'm convinced that the true world changers are the ones we will never know their name. We'll never call them famous. But God will call them great. The Beatitudes are not individual gifts given to different believers at different times. And they are not the qualities of elite, an elite group of Christians. This is not elite status, like goals one day. No, no, no. The Beatitudes are the qualities of every believer who finds themselves in union with Christ. Do we grow into these postures of the heart? Oh, by God's grace, yes. But this is not a description of an elite group of Christians. This is a description of everyone who puts their faith, their trust in Jesus Christ because they know apart from him they have no hope. These are the blessed of God. Briefly now, what do they receive? Oh my goodness, this could be a whole sermon series. What do they receive? The short answer is they receive everything that Christ has earned for them. Remember, they were invited to the mountain they were invited up. What do they receive? Everything that Christ has earned for them. For instance, in verse 3 again, blessed are the poor in spirit. Keep reading. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a present tense reality. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is to say the kingdom of heaven is already their possession somehow. 
The kingdom of God has come in the coming of Jesus Christ. And for those who are united to Christ, they share in the present reality of the kingdom of God here and now. Paul would say some strange things that you are right now, if you are in Christ, you are right now seated with him in the heavenlies. There is a present tense receiving of a kingdom when you come to Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, there is a present tense reality, but there's also a future reality, a consummation of this kingdom that is still to come. Look at verses 4 and 5 together. Blessed are those who mourn. What do they receive? Comfort. For they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek. Now, look at this second half. What do the meek receive? The entire earth. (laughs) That ought to blow your mind. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You would think, and I would think, looking at the world today, that the strong, the mighty, the harsh, the aggressive, the bombastic, the egotistical, the ones that make the headlines, you would think those ones get the earth. Not so. Not in God's economy. Don't think for a moment that the prideful or pride of human ingenuity and pomp will win the day. Pride will not win the day. Who inherits the earth? The meek. A paradox. Greatness. Oh, I've thought so much about this as I've wrestled my flesh. The meek inherit the earth. What is what is meek? There's all kinds of catchy definitions for that. Here's mine. Meekness is greatness defined by the servant life of Christ. Greatness defined by the servant life of Christ. And they inherit the earth. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we Christians are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always, what? Rejoicing as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing what? Everything. Jesus would say later in this same sermon, church, Christians, do not lay up treasures for yourself on earth. Don't do it. It's too risky. Moths, rust, thieves, one of those will devour your riches. Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven, 
Maybe it doesn't provide you status here. But who cares? If this is all moth-eaten and this is not, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Put ultimate value and worth in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The blessed of God receive joy amid sorrow today and ultimate satisfaction and possession in the life to come. Oh Lord, grant us true humility and lasting Christian character. Well, that's point two, the character of a Christian. Our final point now, as we follow the sermon of Christ, is now the witness of a Christian. You are the salt of the earth, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So Jesus sees a direct correlation, a direct connection between character and Christian conduct in the world. And it is absolutely vital that we do not get the order reversed. Please listen to me. Jesus sees the connection between character and and Christian witness. And it is absolutely vital that we do not put Christian witness and influence before Christian character. Character is always primary in the heart of God. In other words, Jesus is not interested in winning a culture war while losing ground in Christian character. Character is always primary in Jesus' mind. This was at the heart and soul of Satan's temptation of Jesus. You can have, Jesus, you can have all this earthly and cultural authority, but all you have to do is sacrifice your character. You can win, but you just have to sacrifice some core principles within. And what did Jesus say? Be gone, Satan. The kingdoms of this earth mean nothing to me. Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There is coming a kingdom that cannot be shaken or bought, or rather, bought only by the blood of Christ. I would argue that Christian character is what makes our influence in the world effective and lasting. 
That's what makes our salt salty. Christian character is what makes our influence in the world effective and lasting. Do we want to win the battle or the war? I think the Sermon on the Mount is aiming at the war. Now, just because character is primary, that doesn't mean that Jesus isn't interested in the Christian's influence in the world. He very much is interested in us impacting the world. Nowhere in the Bible do we have a description of God's people ducking out of society in order to gain greater enlightenment through isolation. Isolation from society is not a biblical principle. Solitude is a biblical principle. And it's an important rhythm in the life of a Christian. But solitude is never to be misunderstood as isolation. In fact, Jesus himself would say in that high priestly prayer, he said to his father, I do not ask that you would take them out of the world. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. But I'm asking that you keep them from the evil one. And then Jesus says in that same prayer, just as you, Father, have sent me into the world, so I am sending them into the world. So the Christian life is not to be one of isolation and subculture, creating our own distinct people with language and our own t-shirts and our own songs, and we just sort of go away from society because they're all nasty and wrong. No, the Christian religion is one of counterculture, not subculture, counterculture. It's salt and light in the world. What good is salt and light if we just separate ourselves from the world? All that's left to the world is decay and darkness. As you, Father, have sent me into the world, so I am sending them into the world. Character first. Character carries the message. It carries the salt and the light. But we are to carry it to the world and to affect the world. It is true. In one sense, we are outsiders. We are sojourners. We're tent people. Right? Even if you own a home, don't get it twisted. You're in a tent. You're moving on. We're sojourners. We're exiles on our way to a, a home, a home that can't be taken from us. True security. But in another sense, Jesus intends for his church to be situated, to influence society in which it finds itself. He describes this influence in the Sermon on the Mount as salt and light. How often have we heard that? Salt and light. Salt, very briefly, in the first century was used for many things as it is today. But in the first century, salt was most vital and most used for a as a preservative, as an antiseptic. You know what an antiseptic is? It's like a disinfectant. The way that salt would preserve meats then and still now is it would stop decay. That's what salt does. It fights off the decaying process. It fights back bacteria that would rot your food. And so in the first century, they would use salt. They'd rub it on everything. They didn't have refrigerators. They'd rub it on everything to fight off decay and bacteria. And so then Jesus is saying, by saying, you, church, are salt, you're salt. He's, by saying this, he's, he's saying you're a means of preservation on the earth. You're an antiseptic. You're a disinfectant. 
you fight back moral decay in the earth. Which before, it's an exhortation to the church. It's an indictment on the world, isn't it? Because it's saying the world is lost and dying and sick. And it's spreading. Sin is like a disease and it needs preservation. But then Jesus goes on to say, doesn't he? But if salt loses its saltiness, how can its flavor be restored? I'm, I'm no chemist or biologist. You know that by now. But I'm pretty sure salt is a pure mineral or something like that. <laughs> and I understand the only way for salt to lose its saltiness is if you cut in other minerals that isn't salt. And this is what swindlers would do in the first century. They'd sell you three pounds of salt, but there's only one pound in there, and the rest is God knows what. But it's white, and it looks salty. But is it salty? No. The same is true in the Christian life. If we substitute the wisdom of the cross with the wisdom of the world to win, we will lose our saltiness. In other words, what I think Jesus is saying is the church needs to be pure. We need to be distinct, different, prophetic. And then he says something very troubling. If salt loses its saltiness, he says it's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out into the roads and trampled by feet. So first, he says, we are the salt of the earth. That, that, that antiseptic, that disinfectant, that fights back that moral decay by living lives of uprightness, by living lives of repentance, by living lives of moral character. When, when, the, when the tax guy says, you know, most people, most people with his glasses on, most people would just not claim that. The Christian says, no, I'm to be salty in that moment and say, well, I'm not most people. (laughs) I live before the face of God. Most people who get cash don't claim that as income. So our role in society is that we are first to be a moral disinfectant, which fight backs moral decay. Second, as we close, Jesus says in verses 14 and 15, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. If salt is interested in fighting decay, then light is interested in fighting darkness. Another indictment of the world. The world is dark and in need of light. Notice with me who Jesus is saying this to. You've got to imagine this group of people. This is an unimpressive group. This is not like a significant board meeting with CEOs. This is not some sort of high-level seminary grads, right? These are, these are peasant fishermen. 
these are, pe- maybe Luke, Luke's the doctor, whatever. The rest of them, peasant fishermen, no formal education. And what does he say to them? You're the light of the world. <laughs> they, they, imagine what you would think if Jesus said that to you. you would think, I think, is he, is there a mouse in his pocket? Is he talking to somebody else? Light in the Bible is always a metaphor for spiritual illumination, spiritual revelation. When God brings light to someone, it means he brings a revelation of himself. And he says to this group of unimpressive disciples, you're the light of the world. Clearly, Jesus is not saying this to them because they have some innate social or political pedigree No, Jesus is not saying this to them because they come with remarkable education or class. All of those things can be wonderful. But Jesus is saying this to them because Jesus knows the source of what will be housed in them. He knows the source of their light is not them. In other words, later in the Gospels, Jesus himself would say of himself, I am the light of the world. And he who would come after me would not walk walk in darkness, but would have the light of life. And so Jesus knows that those who are united with him would reflect his light to the world. Those who are in union with Christ are light in a dark place, not because we're brilliant, but because the sun is shining. And we reflect his brilliance to the world. They are and we are ambassadors for grace and truth, proclaimers of the gospel, of the kingdom. They were once in darkness. You were once in darkness, beloved, but now you have been given the light of life. The world is aching then, and the world is aching now for salt and light. We need the Sermon on the Mount more than anything. I'm tempted to tell a quick story. How mad will parents be if I do this with their kids? 1930s and 40s, the rise of Hitler in Nazi Germany was perplexing and confusing for the church. The church had an identity crisis in 1930, 1940 Germany. And God would raise up pastors, theologians, prophets, Christians, church members to try to resist this identity crisis that the church was having. And one such pastor theologian was a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer pastored his his church and wrote and reflected, and he started to see the church move from this prophetic witness. And they started to adopt all of these ideology and propaganda to win back Germany. You know, the Treaty of Versailles was humbling for Germany. And so the church had drunk in this this thought that we need to win back Germany because we've been humbled. And so they were letting the wisdom of the world come into the church and they let the church be tied to the state. They let the church be indoctrinated by Hitler himself. Hitler would write letters to the bishops Invite them over for drinks. Tell them about the rise of Germany. And the church was drinking it in. And Bonhoeffer was sick to his stomach. He couldn't handle it. And one of the things that Bonhoeffer wrote, 
He said, the church in Germany, the thing that the church in Germany needs the most is the Sermon on the Mount. Because it is the singular document from Christ himself that says what the church ought to be and how the church ought to act in society, regardless of who's in power, regardless if it's Rome or Hitler or Biden or Trump or whoever. We cannot be swayed by the winds of culture. The Sermon on the Mount anchors us to the distinct prophetic witness of the church. And what is this all for? I know I've said we were going to close. We're going to close right now. Verse 16. What is this all for? Look at verse 16. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That is the greatest aim of the life of a Christian, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is the aim of our character. That is the aim of our conduct. Yes, for the flourishing of our families. Yes, for the flourishing of our neighbor and our city and our country and the globe. All for the praise of his glory and grace. I pray that the Sermon on the Mount would change us so that in small, insignificant, unnoticeable ways by the world, we would begin to be salt and light in this very dark and dying world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for preserving in your wisdom this great sermon from Christ. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would move the contents of Christ's sermon into our hearts and minds. Give us gospel wisdom as we face very complex challenges in our individual lives and in our current culture. We're not professing, we're not calling this easy, Lord, but we're asking that we'd be anchored to you. We want to be salt, unadulterated. We want to be light that's, that shines bright. So God, help us. Grant that we would be faithful to you because you have been faithful to us. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.